0: Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Each week, I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and, of course, improving your athletic performance. This week, my guest is Professor Mike Gleeson. Mike is Emeritus Professor of Exercise Biochemistry at Loughborough University. He retired from there in 2016 after 40 years of research and teaching, mostly related to diet, metabolism, health and performance of athletes. And of particular interest to me is Mike's most recent book, Eat, Move, Sleep, Repeat, which provides a programme using evidence-based guidelines on how to establish a healthy lifestyle that will promote better quality of life with reduced risk of chronic disease, and extended longevity exactly what we're seeking in the high-performance human way of life anyway enough of that let's crack on and hear from mike himself welcome to the show professor mike gleason thank you very much uh,
1: simon glad to be on
0: uh, yeah. Now I've been chasing you for a while, actually. Initially, I uh, I wrote to you in oh, right at the very start of the coronavirus pandemic, um, asking if you could come on and talk on about um, immune systems. And I know that was uh, something you were involved with, and uh, but you've retired from that sort of subject now. Um, I'm sure we're going to touch on it at, at some point today. But uh, the real reason for getting you on is because um, a few weeks ago, I was reading um, an article in the pull-out section of a Sun, maybe it was the Times on Saturday, you, uh, maybe a couple of months ago. And there was an article about how to avoid middle-aged spread. And so I'm reading it because I'm in that age now where I'm, I'm interested in some of those more healthy matters. And at the bottom, I see um, your name and a reference to this book you've written, Eat, Move, Sleep and Repeat. And I thought, ah, this is great. I should get Mike onto the show. So hopefully we can expand on those, uh, those philosophies and theories in a little bit more detail.
1: Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah.
0: Now, I confess I haven't got the book, but I have bought the downloadable version. It's a lot bigger than I thought it would be 300 odd pages. That must have taken you quite some time to uh, to write and edit.
1: Yeah, it's a fairly hefty tone for a sort of paperback style book. But uh, yeah, and it took me probably the best part of 18 months to two years to actually research to get all the background information because actually quite a lot of that was relatively new to me having focused before predominantly in sort of exercise physiology and nutrition in relation to mm. to athletes i wanted to turn my attention to to public health issues having recently retired Myself, I'm 65 now, I actually retired pretty much just past my 60th birthday and thought, well, I need something to keep my brain active. I'm not doing lectures and writing papers and research grants anymore. This seemed a good idea to to start on because I was interested in that and trying to think, well, I'd like to live as long as I possibly can and as healthily as I can for as long as I can. And I'd also been diagnosed at the age of 58 with type 2 diabetes. So I wanted to do something about it. Yeah.
0: I think, uh, despite the fact that you and I have worked with probably the elite levels of, of human beings in, in athletes, um, and I guess that you're probably going to tell me that they're not immune from some of the things or all of the things we're going to talk about today. But Definitely, they are the tip of the iceberg, and public health is a far greater concern to um, to the long term sort of uh, well being of the the world, isn't it? Not just our nation.
1: Yes, indeed. There's a lot more sort of what you might call normal people out there than there are these uh, elite sporting icons that we all kind of aspire to. And of course, they're very they're a very good role model. You very rarely see you know any overweight athletes struggling with mobility problems or whatever you know they are basically healthy individuals there's sometimes a little bit of focus on them getting ill particularly around competition time you know somebody got ill like a harry kane gets ill during the euros or something like that it's it's big news but those things are, are relatively rare and you know they don't suffer from the the chronic diseases, because if you're if if you're an elite athlete, let's face it, you're at the uh, the early end of your uh, your your lifespan, really, rather than towards the end of it. And it's uh, you know from middle age onwards that those things that uh, we perhaps the mistakes we make a little bit earlier in life and start mm. to carry on with start to accumulate and then we get like say this kind of problems like middle age spread and you know joints wearing down having problems with bones and and you know the other things that lead us to becoming unfirm ill or or diseased and then mm-hmm. on top of that you've got things like covid coming along that you know basically affects pretty much everybody but as usual Affects the the older population that little bit more than the younger ones. Mm.
0: I mean, elite athletes aren't immune, are they? I, I guess w- once once the uh, the full sort of facts about Christian Ericsson's problem come out, um, we we'd be a little less concerned about the fact that we're exercising it couldn't happen to us because I guess there's there's some sort of congenital issue there that um, that he's had. That's um, but although you would think that. Um, that would have been picked up, perhaps, in some of his medicals, because when anyway, they're pretty stringent with their heart checks, aren't they? When uh, with with elite athletes in Italy. So, in- um- oh,
1: indeed, indeed they are. Yeah, in all professional football clubs, they'll have a, you know a. An ECG. They'll be examined by a doctor. I mean, these players sometimes, you know, the likes of Christian Eriksen, you know, cost millions of pounds to buy and considerable amount of money to insure, and this all, all this sort of thing. So, yes, they they're very rigorously rigorously tested in a, in a you know in a medical sense. So it's it's quite surprising that mm. he you know you know he's not he's not a, a really young player. He's in his late twenties and. uh, You know, it's surprising, like you say, that nothing has actually been picked up Mm. uh, before. And usually it is down to some sort of congenital abnormality or unless he's had some something acute that's, you know, really only surfaced very, very recently that he's not been aware of, you know, Mm. but it's not going to be down to what it usually is like the accumulation of fat in the arteries and arteriosclerosis and coronary heart disease. He's had an electrical problem with his heart. And sometimes there's can be a little bit more difficult to pick up. And even some normal athletes can have slightly different uh, rhythms to, to normal people. Of course they generally have larger hearts mm-hmm. and they use them a, a lot more than as uh, less active individuals do, shall we say. So, uh, Yeah, it's a bit surprising, but it's not something that you would, I think, refer to as a chronic disease. It's something that's cropped up or it's been there all the time and it's just not been detected had professor graham stewart on the
0: cardiologist from from the bristol area who works with a lot of athletes you, you probably come across him in your time and uh, he was saying that in general um ex- e- more ex- exercise and more exercise is better for your heart than not doing any so even if we even if we hear about an athlete that's had a heart problem that shouldn't put you off um uh, because as i say the, the, in in most cases you're reducing your all-cause mortality with with regular exercise aren't you
1: Oh, indeed. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could say there's a a slightly increased risk of heart attack during exercise than when you're at rest. But in general, actually, yeah, you say doing regular exercise is is protective for your heart. So you're much less likely to have those problems and particularly um, later in life. These events that do occur are big news because they are really, Mm. really quite so rare. So that's reassuring to anybody who's worried about, oh, I don't want to do it. It's a bit like the the worry about the vaccines to a degree, isn't it? Yes, a very small proportion of people are going to have a problem mm. with it. But the vast majority, more than 99%, much more than that probably, are actually going to you know get benefit from it. So right at the beginning,
0: Mike, you talked about your own um, sort of thoughts about your health and wanting to continue that and improve your health span. To as long as you can in your lifespan. Um, that, that was a concept actually I uh, picked up from an, another podcast um guest a few months ago, Dr. Paul Clayton, and he talks about um health span as being um sort of like having compressed morbidity, so um having as short a time as possible suffering from illness and decline at the end of your life and and sort of um Basically, coming 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 into that rather than shuffling in towards the grave, coming roaring in on your motorbike and shouting yeehaw, That was a great ride. Um, and I, I know that as I get towards well, my exactly, six- I think yeah, as I, as I get towards my sixties, I'm I'm definitely thinking about how I can preserve the the fitness that I have now and the health that I have now as much as possible and what I can do. And and I think um, the majority of our listeners are triathletes, but they're not elite triathletes. There may be some elite age groupers, but they're not professional triathletes. And, and so that means that they're humans first and they have all of the other things to worry about in that human life, like working and family and balancing all of those things. And so I'm hoping that what we're going to talk about today, will be talking to them and, and and helping them to understand that you know just because you do triathlon, it doesn't mean that you're super healthy. And there's lots of things that you probably could do to
1: get to optimal health. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing I sort of promote as the sort of the philosophy of that eat, move, sleep, repeat book. Uh, I've asked be, I've been asked before uh, whether or not is that the same as what people call this health span philosophy, uh, and in a sense it is. But I get the sense, particularly that the the medics in particular refer to health as simply the the absence of illness or disease or infirmity. Whereas I tried to think, well, couldn't we even be better? And if you like, even have a, a longer health span if we really aim to get our health to be optimal. In other words, literally the, the best it can possibly be. You know, so don't just settle for good health as being the absence of illness or disease try and improve your health to the point where you're really very unlikely to come down with that sort of problem in particular in relation to these chronic diseases metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease problems arteriosclerosis coronary heart disease peripheral vascular disease mm. you know and even cancer i mean Exercise protects against at least some of the cancers as well. So, you know, there are lots of things you can do. And I said in the book, it sort of boils down by which is to you know, to eat, to get the energy and the micronutrients we need, to 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 sleep, so we can rest our body physically and our mind mentally, and to um you know, to, to move, in other words, to, to exercise. Otherwise, our muscles, as you know, if you ever had your leg in a plaster uh, because you've broken a bone, you know, your, your muscles start to wither away in a matter of weeks or months, uh, to at least to a certain degree, which can make you in your older age, if that happens, um, you know, it can make you actually unable to, to function or to live independently. So if we focus on those three things, the things that we actually need to actually basically survive, we can aim to do the best sort of lifestyle behaviours in those areas that will actually get our health the the best it can possibly be. Okay, Mike. So I, so I get
0: basically that there's three pillars that are going to um, support this notion of optimal health: um, our exercise, our nutrition and sleep and if we try to get all of those three as best that we can get them to be in our current circumstances and always continue sort of reflecting and trying to improve that's going to put us in the best position for optimal health and avoiding particularly those metabolic diseases which we know we do have a lot of control over um keeping
1: at bay yes that's exactly right yeah
0: all right, Mike. So I'm going to ask you an awkward question now. You, you mentioned a few moments ago that you were diagnosed at 58 with type 2 diabetes. I, my, my father's also been diagnosed with that. And I, I know exactly why that's happened for him, because his diet's poor. Um, I, I guess some of our listeners will be thinking, well, hold on a minute. Professor Gleason's an expert in in um, this sort of thing. So how did he succumb to type 2 diabetes if he knows what to do to avoid it and knows what the signs are?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a good question, and it, it actually came as quite a big shock to me when I was actually diagnosed with it. It was just part of a routine annual blood test that I'd been having since the age of fifty, when I was uh, diagnosed with having high blood pressure, and I put that down to being a familial thing because my my mother suffered with high blood pressure from a a, a fairly early age. And I think I've just sort of inherited her genes and followed in her footsteps. And not a right lot I could do about that, because certainly up until my mid-40s, I was really quite active. Not not a not a runner, I must say, but I've always been uh, enjoyed sort of cycling, particularly walking and hiking, and and that kind of thing, and playing tennis on a pretty regular basis, and. Uh, in the league matches in the Leicestershire League. So I was I was always active up to my mid-40s. And then just as I became more and more sort of senior in my job, moving from sort of senior lecturer to, to professor, all of a sudden I'm involved in a lot more meetings. I've got to write a lot more grant applications. I'm responsible for a lot more staff. Uh, my lecturing didn't go down that much. But I I just felt I was spending more and more time simply sat at my desk. And I'd sort of outgrown my value as a subject for the students' experiments for their BSc, MSc, and PhD projects, some more people in the age range, sort of 18 to 40. And once you get a, over 40, you sort of get, get on the side when it comes to looking for volunteers to do exercise studies. So um, yeah, I, I became essentially more sedentary as a result of work and job pressures, uh, being sat at my computer all day, uh, even at lunchtime. I wouldn't go out. I'd just sit down, carry on at my computer, and you know, stuff a sandwich into my face. And uh, um, that lack of exercise, and probably also perhaps I'd have to admit drinking a little bit too much of the uh, the red wine at night, uh, you know, contributed to weight gain. And I ended up uh, from being in my sort of mid forties, I would have been about. 60 to 62 kilos something like that uh then uh by about the age of 50 i was about 68 but not 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 too bad but by the time i was 58 i'd put on about another 10 to 12 kilos i was very close to 80 kilos and i'm only about five foot seven so i'm not a big guy um and it, i think that's what did it uh so that's my excuse for having it um On the plus side, when I did get it, I decided immediately to do something about it rather than relying on what was being promised was going to be, well, you're going to be on medication in a couple of years if you Mm. don't do something to modify it. And modifying means trying to get rid of it, first of all, through diet and exercise and essentially losing that excess fat that you've accumulated in those last 10 years. Mm. So it creeps up on you as type 2 diabetes that's the problem and you don't get any obvious symptoms i I had no idea i had it it was simply on the basis of a blood test that your measure of your long-term blood sugar is uh above the uh sort of the, the threshold at which we define as you having type 2 diabetes i admitted it was only sort of just marginally above it but uh i thought if it's marginally above it i can get it below I think if I do something about it straight away rather than letting this condition carry on so that's when I decided to actually actively change my lifestyle and also around about the point I decided right I'm going to retire, I'm going to retire when I'm 60 because then I can get rid of all this stress uh, cut down on the alcohol and you know uh, actually be more active and uh, you know change my diet to a more normal one rather than trying to fit it to what I'm doing at work and working long hours from like 7 30 a.m till 7 30 p.m coming home having a rushed dinner and no time for exercise and just wanting basically you know like I say a couple of glasses of red wine to relax. It. it, I'm just
0: reflecting on that paragraph that you've just um, spoken there Mike and thinking about the number of Lifestyle behaviours that it would be possible to modify within there, um, in order to improve your health situation. But I'm also thinking that there'll be a lot of listeners nodding, and uh, along with what you're saying, and thinking, hmm, I notice that I I can uh, um, I can concur with that. That that's how their lifestyles have changed um, as they've got older, as perhaps they advance in their jobs, they. Maybe take a post as a director or the CEO of a business. They've got children, so that means that they can't get out on the bike or go running as much. They s- slip into that sort of role of entertaining clients a little bit more, or as you say, coming home and just enjoying a glass of red wine. Because, of course, why one glass of red wine per night won't harm, will it? But it's the cumulative effect that we should be worrying about, not the acute effect.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it's that. It's even you know, even if it's consuming, say one or 200 calories above what you really need per day, you know, that accumulates over time and people would perhaps be surprised about how sort of quickly that can accumulate over the the course of a year to put in on, you know, two or three kilos. So, you know, 10 years down the line, you could be 10 to 20 kilos Mm. overweight if you're not doing sort of more exercise to compensate for it. And at that time, my exercise was time available was diminishing and my uh, uh my work and my calorie intake wasn't wasn't changing or or possibly even slightly increasing because of the the alcohol and uh, i think people just don't, don't often realize just how much alcohol there is in things like beer and beer and wine you know and- one single bottle of red wine, for example, contains about 600 calories. You mm. know, so it doesn't take you know more than a few glasses of wine, particularly if it's a, a generous glass to, you know to start piling on several hundred calories extra that you don't really need per day in terms mm. of your energy requirements.
0: I've just done a little sum there. If, if you had uh, if, if you've just consumed 100 calories per day more than you were, perhaps needing that would equate to around seven or eight pounds weight gain per year. Very easy. So over 20 years, like you say, 16 pounds, that's sort of seven or eight kilos. So, uh, and that's a hundred calories. It's, it's less than a glass of wine. Uh, it's uh, a couple of digesters with your morning coffee. They're seemingly innocuous little additions, aren't they? But it's as, as going back to what we've both just said, it's the cumulative effect over time that creeps up on you.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why the, you know that's why in a sense it's called middle age spread because it creeps up slowly, and in, in your younger years you tend to be more you know, more active, and you know as that diminishes, particularly with as of work like I say, then uh, almost imperceptibly, you you start to accumulate those excess calories as as body fat. Uh, you know you you probably. Don't really change very much what you eat over time um, if you're living a fairly sort of normal lifestyle. I mean, for for athletes, you know, particularly triathletes and professional footballers and the like, who are pretty active people during their careers uh, when they're trying to be competitive, uh, you know, those uh, um, if 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 you stay at the same calorie intake that you do when you're doing that. You're going to put on weight very quickly and often you see this in the in footballers when they stop playing mm. you know that they, they balloon in weight because they almost carry on eating perhaps quite not the same amounts that they have but they they don't cut it down as much as they need to given that their activity levels have have diminished. I mean it's all a question at the end of the day of energy balance, you know you whether you put on weight or lose weight depends on that relationship between how much how many calories you're taking in to to how many you're actually expending in your your resting metabolic rate and uh and what you do with with exercise just before we move on to
0: what's what are the most significant lifestyle changes you can make then to to achieve optimal health i'd just like to go back to type 2 diabetes there's there's a lot of triathletes that listening to this who um have quite a sweet tooth i i would put myself in that category as well although i feel like in the last few months i've knocked that on the head significantly but i can give you a couple of behaviors that I notice uh, amongst endurance athletes and particularly cyclists, because they tend to go out in groups and and ride for several hours on a weekend. It's the coffee shop ride. And as soon as you get in for the coffee, the majority of people are also heading for the cake tray and finding a nice big piece of cake. I also hear people talking about, well, you know, I can eat pizza um, at night or I can have takeaways. It never seems to bother me. I do lots of training. My body fat's pretty low. But that's just the outward appearance, isn't it? It doesn't mean that, particularly as you're getting into your 40s and 50s, that doesn't mean that you're not pushing yourself towards type 2 diabetes if there's an overconsumption of um, refined sugars and,
1: um, you know, and processed foods. I think that can contribute perhaps a small about, but but, but I, I'm not too concerned about that with athletes. If they're doing the exercise and burning the calories that way and they're not eating more than what they actually need to meet their daily energy requirements. Mm. And I don't see that it's particularly an issue exactly which macronutrient be it carbohydrate or fat, or whether it be in refined foods, sugars, as opposed to you know starchy vegetables, uh, as to where they actually get their carbohydrates from. I mean, yes, with the sugary stuff, you will get uh, larger spikes in your your blood glucose, but there's actually not a lot of evidence that that actually is something that really contributes to your type 2 diabetes. It does seem to be mostly related. At least 80% of the risk comes from simply being overweight by probably at least 5 kilos above what you should be uh usually something more like 10 to 20 kilos or more above what you should be that pushes you towards that and it is more prevalent frankly, right? like twice as prevalent in in the, in the men than it is in the women and that's thought largely to be due to the, the distribution of that and the differences in that between men and women uh you know men tend to put on their their extra fat Around the middle, you know, the the beer belly type thing, the, the mm-hmm. middle age spread, the the tire around the middle. Whereas the women tend to distribute it a little bit, a little bit more evenly around the body. You know, it goes goes under the skin, it goes on the thighs, the buttocks, the breasts, etc. Uh, in men, it tends to be focused in the in the abdomen and that 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 fat and it, around your gut basically, and your internal organs. In the abdomen, which we call visceral fat, seems to the most with the largest tendency to become inflamed, and to and that's actually what drives insulin resistance and type two diabetes.
0: Okay, that's that's quite interesting then, because there's there's a lot of chatter, particularly in the the circles around um, people who are advising athletes that that too much consumption of sugary substances, whether that's sports drinks or Chocolate or the, the cake on the coffee stop can can lead to that those insulin spikes, regular insulin spikes that you talk about to, to regulate blood sugar, and and then eventually with age the the insulin becomes less sensitive, and so that's that's what leads to what leads you to to be pointing you towards type two diabetes. So interesting to hear that from somebody who's done done and reviewed some of the research. Uh, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, cla- if
1: you're active. If you're active, Simon, if you're a very active person, you're know, like the, these athletes, even the amateur ones who are doing, you know, substantial amounts of training. I mean, the actual exercise you're doing with every bout of exercise, you get some improvement in insulin sensitivity. And with the exercise training, the regular stuff you're doing that also promotes insulin sensitivity. So the actual exercise you're doing is actually opposing the development of type 2 diabetes, which might otherwise be promoted by all that that, that sugar you're having. And plus, you're burning those calories rather than storing them as fat. So that's why there's a relatively little risk if you're highly active that uh, having uh, lots of sugary stuff uh, isn't going to drive you towards type 2 diabetes. On the other hand, I would also recommend you mention of refined processed foods and well if you can i think those are generally uh, best avoided because often they contain more fat and salt as well as sugar that you don't really want and they tend to be less dense in the the essential nutrients and phytochemicals and things like that that we 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 need for optimal health so i would always advise people where possible to you know, make their own foods from scratch. To cook their own meals using fresh vegetables, consume fresh fruits, and mm. uh, just to eat as much of the starchy ones—your potatoes and pasta and rice and bread—and that as you need to to meet your energy requirements. There's no problem in athletes eating lots of carbohydrate. That's the main fuel you're going to use mm-hmm. for doing your know, moderate to high intensity exercise being able to perform well we do need that so you can't tell people to avoid that or they just won't be able to perform well that's um that's interesting
0: that's maybe something we can come back to with nutrition as well because there's been a there's been a big movement towards keto and um towards low carb high fat and i'd like to once we start talking about nutrition in particular and, and the sort of dietary approach i'd like to return to that but um you you talked about preparing meals from real foods, taking the time to chop those up and to put them in the oven or to grill them or to, to stir fry them or whatever, or just have them as a salad, but using real ingredients and preparing from scratch. I guess that is one of the obvious modifiable lifestyle behaviors that you can make to improve your health is to avoid picking up the phone and um, ringing for Uber Eats to come and deliver you something. Um, what 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 other obvious lifestyle behaviors can we modify to to start pushing us down the road towards optimal health
1: well as i say well we've mentioned sort of losing any excess weight that you might you might have so your bmi wants to be less than than 25 to be in the uh, sort of the healthy range of 18 to 25 um we've talked about doing doing regular exercise which is a and no doubt you've come before in previous podcasts everybody knows is you know generally overall has many health health benefits so it is about exercising regularly eating healthier in other words making sure we get our you know five a day of uh, vegetables and fruits and that sort of thing and uh, if if you're not an athlete focusing on um more on eating the the non-starchy vegetables i mean basically you can eat pretty much as much as you want of those because they're so low energy you know per per gram or per ounce that you can eat as much as you want of your leafy greens your gourds your uh things like you know Broccoli, asparagus, even carrots are, are much lower in energy than than, than potato, for example. So you mm. can you can concentrate on those at the bottom of your you know food pyramid, if you like, and limit your intake of those at the top of the energy density scale, which are the fats, the oils, and the things like alcohol. Mm. Um, and then it's about sleeping well. As well, if you can improve your sleep quality, aim to try and get around about seven hours, let's say on average, or at least somewhere between six and eight hours of, of sleep per day. That's been shown to be the thing that one of the things that can minimise your risk of developing conditions like type two diabetes and coronary heart disease. You know, so there's, there's there's an optimal amount of sleep we can aim for. That might mean adjusting things in your environment to improve your your sleep uh, quality. You know the number of awakenings that you have per night, and we can get into that if you want a, a bit. It's a, you know because athletes actually tend to sleep worse than most other people. Well, uh, we-
0: we will. I've got um I, def- I definitely want to, to come back to sleep. Um, I just wanted to pick up with you on BMI there. I, uh, I was doing my BMI the other day. I'm, I'm 178 and I weigh 79 kilos now. I think, I think my body fat's around 10 or 12%, which is pretty good, I think, for my age. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's given me a BMI of around 25, which on the, on, the, on, on the chart puts me in the sort of heading towards obese. But I, you, you definitely wouldn't. Um, you definitely wouldn't label me as that if you were to take you know body fat using calipers or anything. So um is is bmi just a guide really because it definitely is biased against people who are
1: um are heavily muscled, isn't it? Indeed it is. Yes, it's not not the ideal uh measure, but it's one that the sort of the medics generally take as their main indicator of uh, being, you know, uh overweight underweight or you know what we call sort of normal healthy range of uh, of weight in relation to and to height but as you say it doesn't distinguish between whether that weight is there because of your muscle mass or because of excess fat so that 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 that's its main weakness so it's a very broad mm. indicator and like you say if, if you're actually able to measure your own body fat either through skin caliper measurements or using one of these simple uh, scales, electronic scales incorporate a, a bioelectrical impedance device give you a rough estimate of what your body fat is and if it's you know if it's coming out as low as yours 10 to 12 percent that yeah i mean that's uh, that, that that's that's very healthy and there's there's no real concerns even if your bmi happens to be 25 or 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 above
0: I, uh, I, I, there will be some people listening saying, well, they're not very accurate, those bioimpedance," And I, and I would agree with that, although it, it seems yeah. from the experience I've got of the various different types, there's always a, an element of inaccuracy. However, what I would say is that a decent set of bioimpedance scales are generally consistent and you do notice some consistent changes. I notice that my body fat tends to go up when I'm more dehydrated or my, my registered body fat for that day tends to go up when I'm more dehydrated. And at the same time, my body weight will fall. So, and that usually comes on the day after a long bike ride in the in the heat. Um, and by monitoring that, it, it tells me other things, like the the fact that I need to drink a little bit more fluids. Maybe um, equally, I get sometimes when I'm weighing a little heavier, and my my body fat has dropped right down to seven or eight percent, and that usually means I'm very well hydrated and probably I've had a big meal the night before, and all my muscles are full of glycogen. So. Um, they're they're not super accurate for those of you who are going to pick me up on that, but they're consistent, and if if it's giving you the same figures most
1: of the time, then you can call that pretty reliable as well. I'd I'd, I'd say, but two two points come out of that to me immediately. One is I wouldn't be concerned about sort of day to no. day changes if you see consistent change of direction in which way your, your apparent percentage body fat is going, you know, on a week by week basis mm-hmm. and over a number of weeks, yeah, then you're probably going to be fairly confident that, uh, yeah, something, you know, you, you, are putting on a little bit of, uh, extra fat. But, you know, don't be worried about day-to-day fluctuations. The other thing you mentioned is your hydration status is one of the things that affects it. And what you've done, perhaps in terms of your exercise, people you've done a long ride uh, the day before, that, that will affect it as well, mainly by influencing your hydration status rather than your percentage body fat, which isn't mm. going to change very much anyway, whatever you do no. on a day-to-day basis. But the, yeah, what that tells us is we should be pretty consistent when we try and do our measurements of both body weight and bioelectrical impedance measurements to estimate, as you say, percentage body fat roughly. Uh, If you're using the same device, that's better, obviously, because it's uh, that should be fairly consistent in terms of how it responds. So the variation is then coming in with what else you've been doing with with your body on day. So if you measure your weight and your bioelectrical impedance at the same time of day, and I I would recommend doing it after you've woken up, Mm -hmm. after you've been for a pee and to the toilet, and uh, before you have breakfast. In the morning if you do that always do your measurements at that time you're comparing like to like because you've had an overnight sleep you'll have had some restorative nutrition from whatever you had since your last training session before you went to bed and uh, to your bladder you know you, you you're measuring yourself with an, an empty bladder i mean you can have a, you know, a liter even two liters stored of, of water, fluid urine in, in in your bladder when you do the measurement. So if you do it every time after you've emptied your bladder, and you've been for the other business in the toilet, then uh, now you, you you're you're going to be in a much more consistent state each time you make your measurement, and then your comparisons will be more, mm. be more realistic.
0: I'm thinking about these lifestyle behaviors and my immediate thoughts turn to January the 1st and New Year's resolutions. And the reason why most of those seem to fail is because the majority of individuals are thinking short term and trying to make drastic changes to quite a lot of things that they do. Uh, I've got a feeling that you would emphasize, and no doubt when I get to this point in the book, it'll be confirmed, but I've got a feeling that you would emphasize more subtle changes that are sustainable and thinking long term in order to get the maximum success to to, to go towards optimal
1: health. Um, yeah, for example, you know, if we if we take just doing more exercise, I'm not saying suddenly you know go and sign up for gym membership and go and do some weights and circuit training and and that in the gym. You've got to find. I think something, you know, be determined, right, I'm going to be more active and then find the way that you enjoy doing that the most. I mean, that's the only way you're going to actually stick at it. There's no trying to, you know, you could try different things. I'd recommend people to try different sports. You'll be surprised about, you know, what you might enjoy. For some, it might be just simply, you know, Walking. Uh, we're lucky enough to live near the countryside so we we enjoy going for country, country walks you know uh, and i'm retired and i've got the time to do that but not everybody has and i appreciate that and that certainly wasn't the case in my uh only 10 years ago um, but it's finding what you you like to do and if you're aiming to say let's say you want to you want to do enough activity to burn about 500 calories a day. If you look at the different activities through which you can achieve that sort of calorie burn, you're looking at doing maybe an hour of aerobics, an hour of badminton or circuit training, maybe cycling for about uh, an hour, and 20 minutes, if you're going at only a sort of a moderate speed, about 10 miles an hour. Running. You know, uh, it's probably one of the better ones, actually, for uh, for fat burning. And you can expend 500 calories in not much more over 30 minutes if you're running at sort of around about 10 kilometers an hour at a, you know, a moderate but decent pace. And even walking. If, like me, you walk about sort of two and a half to three miles an hour, which for me is fairly brisk walking. Um you know i i can burn 500 calories in 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 under 2 hours so you know th- th- there are doable forms of exercise that aren't going to exhaust you um we hear a bit a lot about you know doing high intensity interval exercise or hit this seems to be the thing that's being really sort of promoted nowadays from you know from the the fitness gurus to the Uh, the celebrity TV doctors, you know, promoting doing this. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, although it's a very good time efficient method of doing exercise for your health, if you haven't got time to do the longer duration, more moderate intensity stuff, it is, uh, in my opinion, at least, I could give you the reasons for it uh, that I would say it's it's very little use for actually fat burning or trying to control weight or lose body weight if you're already overweight.
0: Might even be the wrong choice of exercise for somebody who's overweight, because that would indicate they probably don't have decent fitness.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it, for one thing, it's actually very difficult for anybody who's overweight to actually do. Uh, when I was, a, a say, in a younger man, when I was under 40, I was involved in a lot of experimental studies for PhD students and the like, including the likes of Paul Greenhalf, who was doing studies on uh, the influence of diet on High intensity exercise performance without just getting on a bike and basically cycling at 100% of aerobic capacity or maximum oxygen uptake to fatigue. And for most people, that only takes four or five minutes. Mm. But I know after doing that kind of stuff, I, w- I was, even though we were doing it in the fasted state because of the, the nature of the experiments we were doing, um, I still felt really sick afterwards. <laughs> uh dizzy sick unwell it was never an air form of exercise i was i was going to take up and i wouldn't recommend it for for anybody so it, it, it's not comfortable to do and you, you know it raises your body temperature you get all sweaty and now you don't feel well at all particularly if you're not used to doing it so to actually start doing that from scratch i think was the last people you should be recommending people to do um but the thing that really gets up my nose is uh I've read several books because I was writing or intending to write this sort of healthy lifestyle guidebook, this Eat, Move, Sleep, Repeat. I read quite a few of the books that were already out there by the various uh, celebrity that you see on television and uh, various fitness gurus I'm sure you'll have heard of but I won't name for litigation purposes uh, but you know I, I, I've read things like them saying that you know oh five minutes of hit a day is great for burning fat it'll get rid of your visceral fat it'll stop you from getting ill or type 2 diabetes it's a great way to to lose body fat I just wondered where the heck these guys were getting this sort of information from. They we were actually putting it into print and putting their, their name to it because so I thought it was complete nonsense. Because if you work out the amount of calories that are burned in five minutes of hit, which mm. is by definition interval exercise, you're not doing more than about 30 seconds of exercise on and off in a five-minute session. You know, at most it's a couple of minutes of exercise. And, you, you know... You, you don't be lucky if you burn 100 calories, even, even at that high intensity in that sort of time. That's not going to make any dent on your, in your, on your, on your, on your fat um, you know, it's, it's in the noise that we have from day to day. So, And then I've sometimes seen papers in the literature where the headline is hit, great way to lose fat or something along those, those lines. When you look at the paper, that's the overall conclusion. They're actually saying hit is better than aerobic exercise for losing body fat. And sometimes that you'll see that in the abstract, in the conclusion of the paper. And uh, unless you actually take the trouble to read the whole paper, you don't always find out what were they actually comparing. Mm. And when I've looked at some of these papers that make these sort of claims for hit, uh, you find they're comparing something like doing 25 to 30 minutes of HIT versus doing 40 minutes of moderate aerobic activity like jogging. Yeah, how many people... Uh, that's, how very, many p- that's very different to, to comparing five minutes of HIT with what I would call reasonable amount of moderate activity, which, like I've said, is burning about 500 calories in an hour. Yeah, my
0: question there will be how many people are capable of doing... 30 minutes total accumulated hip workout um well uh, you're
1: going to be absolutely knackered at the end of that that's for sure aren't you so not not many i would think
0: i, I think probably my my weekly hit workout for cycling has about 10 or 12 minutes of duration in there so it might be an hour's workout but but there'll be a lot of warming up and cooling down and um what some people call luxurious rests to make sure i maintain my performance but but the total, the total duration of time at that super high intensity is only 10 or 12 minutes. Um, yeah. What, what do you think about strength training then? We we hear a lot about, uh, obviously, as people get older, you naturally lose your strength. It declines probably from, I guess it di- differs with individuals, but let's say from your late 30s, early 40s, slowly decline and then speeding up as you get into your 50s. Uh, are you a fan of strength training for uh, helping to increase metabolism? Um, yeah, as, uh, as uh, well as absolutely.
1: as well as human function. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You're right. This uh, age related decline in muscle mass, which generally kicks in mostly, well, they say it starts at the age of thirty, but for most people, it's probably most noticeable from the age of sort of fifty onwards. Um, perhaps you don't notice it to the same degree because you're also at that same time putting on that little extra weight into because of the fat, your extra fat you're accumulating. So your body mass might not change noticeably. So you might not think, "Well, I'm not, I'm not losing muscle mass because my my body weight hasn't changed, or it's actually increased over the years." But you are actually losing some muscle mass and you know ct scans of of limbs and your your legs and your arms clear clearly show that the actual arm circumference might not be very different there's a lot less muscle and a bit more fat in there Uh, so yes but you can reverse that uh, or you can help to maintain your muscle mass from early age by doing regular strength exercise, I prefer to call it resistance type uh, exercise, because it doesn't actually have to involve literally going to a gym and and lifting weights. You can do these simple exercises at home, things like push-ups, for example, Mm -hmm. are a very good exercise to do you're your exercising your your arm your shoulder and your your back muscles your your core strength as well is being activated with that uh, doing leg raises and just doing and doing doing squats well maybe holding something a little heavy but it doesn't need to be too heavy I have a, a pair of the small hand arm. Dumb or handheld dumbbells, really, you know, they're they're only sort of four kilos each. Uh, But if you do squats with those, you're loading your legs a little bit more. And that's the kind of activity you could do to uh, actually uh, help maintain your muscle mass. And of course, if you do use strategic intake of protein uh, around that, particularly have regular. Meals of protein, spreading it out over the course of the day, rather than loading it all in a, an evening meal at night, and actually ignoring protein at breakfast. You you can actually, uh, you know, further enhance that anabolic activity in your muscles and promote that that muscle gain, and that helps also, of course, to raise your your resting metabolic rate and if you are going to go on a diet to lose that excess fat you continue with that resistance exercise keep up your protein intake but cut down your fat and carbohydrate intake you know you can help to prevent that to fall in resting metabolic rate which otherwise occur when you start doing some fairly drastic dieting yeah i'm glad you mentioned protein there because it's um
0: a lot of the Nutritionists that I've spoken to uh, talk about perhaps being more mindful of um, increasing your protein as you get older for that um, for that muscle function. Uh, going back to middle age spread, it seems like it's a perfect storm, isn't it? Because as you get into your forties, you're losing muscle mass, which we know um, increases your resting metabolic rate and helps to burn off calories. So you're reducing that. So you're perhaps not burning any. Uh, you're burning less calories while you're sitting down at your desk Uh, you do less exercise so you're burning less calories but you are continuing to eat the same amount of calories and so that excess that you're not burning off is getting stored and so we have this perfect storm of this you're getting weaker you're getting less fit and you're getting heavier and then that sort of tends to spiral down a bit doesn't it
1: that's right really i mean people need to think about what they eat and you know there's probably a tendency for people to think to eat pretty much the same throughout their lifespan you know particularly if they're not a particularly active person they might just think well i need to say i'm no smaller than i was when i was 20 years old i need to be eating about about the same and uh, yeah th- th- that's a bit of a misnomer really because as you say you're because your muscle mass declines with time unless you actively try and do something to to prevent it then uh, that means you're your metabolic rate, your resting metabolic rate also falls. And again, we're only talking about marginal changes in mm. calorie intake or in this case, declines in calorie expenditure due to changes in your in your metabolic rate. Like you say, it only takes that hundred calorie difference per day and you are going to start accumulating excess fat. Are you familiar with the concept
0: of the active
1: couch potato? Uh, <laughs> I've heard of the couch potato and I've act, heard of active people. I haven't, I haven't particularly heard of the uh, the one mentioning there.
0: Well, there was, there was so um, this this phrase was coined by some, uh, probably some of your colleagues and peers in in Australia. They were doing research into people who exercised regularly. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. they were the, the people who go to the pool or go for a run before they go to work. And there's a mindset where, you feel morally superior to your sedentary work colleagues because you've done your hours worth of exercise, and because of you having banked that, um, you then get into the mindset of well, it's okay for me to sit at my desk all day. And the research then went on to find that um, that there was no there was no increased reduction of. Uh, disease potential or illness potential through this regular exercise. In fact, there they were perhaps worse off than the people who potted around all day, getting up from the desk every half an hour to go to the bathroom or go to the coffee shop or, or to the you know to the vending machine or or to go you know walk around the office and talk to one of their colleagues. And it's it's something I'm familiar with from a lot from the point of view of a lot of triathletes is that because they've done an hour's worth of exercise in the morning, they will then feel that like that gives them permission to stay seated at their desk all the day because because they're still exercising regularly um so i wasn't sure if i see what
1: you mean yeah so um yeah i see so yeah i see what you mean there simon yeah and uh, it it's also kind of one it's one of the reasons that i've heard people say well exercise isn't as good as dieting for for losing um weight when when you're trying to do that when you are overweight Um, and and they put it down to these sort of like you say it's almost like compensatory behavior Mm -hmm. you're doing that exercise you're assuming that's all going to be extra burning calories compared to what you would have been doing otherwise but like say otherwise you might have been you know like say pottering around doing little bits of stuff also accumulates as calorie burn to a degree and it's not like comparing Well, i'm doing exercise compared to doing absolutely nothing and just sitting on my bottom watching the computer or watching tv mm. so yeah yeah you've got to be careful against uh sort of uh, like I say getting uh, a bit cocky with what you've done and uh, celebrating your achievement of doing an hour exercise in the morning and then sort of completely forgetting the other sort of uh, 12 other Days when, uh, hours you're awake during the the day when you could also be potentially active, obviously not not continuously but intermittently, and take advantage of those. And don't sort of change your lifestyle just because you're doing for the rest of the day. Just because you're doing earning that sort of one hour of uh, brownie points for your your hour of exercise before breakfast or something.
0: I. I refer particularly now to the title of your book in the second word which is move and encouraging people dis- despite the exercise levels that they may do as a triathlete you know if they run to work in the morning and then go swimming after work um to to keep moving during the day there's there's other we know that there's um you know we probably haven't got time to go into it now but i know there's a lot of um, metabolic Uh, functions that that take place that are perhaps switched off when you don't move and you sit at your desk for eight hours there's also muscles that don't get used when you switch off so even if you're doing that volume of exercise you stood you should still be moving in some way um every hour having having a little alarm on and getting up and going for a walk around the office or getting a couple of minutes of fresh air outside and a bit of sunlight as well which which has other health benefits that that we're going
1: to perhaps talk about when we come on to sleep yeah that's right i mean it's uh yeah it, it's sort of yeah you, you can you can bracket into you know the the times when you're actually doing intentionally doing you know um serious physical activity like going for a run or a cycle or or a swim and the rest of the time and it's important to me not not become that sort of couch potato person um you know, it's uh minimizing the sitting time that you're doing. Yeah. You know, we for don't again we sure. lie down during the the, the the daylight hours, but uh you know we, we are we are sat down a lot of the time unless you again consciously do something about that and you know, like you say have a little alarm or something like that on your watch or something. That just reminds you that you know, you've been sat down for thirty minutes or something. You can buy these Actigraph ones now that you know register movement mm. uh, and use those as an alarm to indicate well you you ain't you ain't really moved <laughs> very much for the last thirty minutes or an hour or something. You know, it's uh, a time to get up and you so uh, like five or ten minutes take a break.
0: Yeah, and I think there's quite a lot of evidence, isn't there, that uh, if you're active during the day and particularly if you. Force yourself to get up from your desk around lunchtime, and, and maybe go and get half an hour's worth of, of fresh air, and and even if it's light, gentle activity like like you talked about there, just going for a walk, and disconnecting from maybe your computer and your phone, you actually become more productive. I think I think there's a there's a counter argument though a counter message that people picked up is that if you stay at your desk you're more productive because you you're actually at your desk for longer but but i think it's been measured that people might be busy but they're less productive if you get up from your desk and go for a walk at lunchtime for half an hour you come back your brain's been recharged and you are more productive and get more stuff done in the afternoon
1: yeah that, that that's right again if, if you if you stick at the same thing for too long your brain just start to get you know bored with it if you like and uh you know and and your performance w- will start to drop as your attention starts to drop. You make more mistakes and things like that. So yeah, getting up and f- refreshing yourself if you like, giving your mind a break and something else to think about or even to enjoy, uh, even if it's for a relatively short time, breaking it up during the day can keep you, you know, more invigorated during the day and hence help to maintain your 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 work performance. Just Going looping back to food
0: for one moment, you do touch on this in the book, but um, I just wanted to to get your take on it for the podcast. You refer to superfoods as being a marketing gimmick rather than something that has any real substance. Can you just expand on that a little, please, for the
1: listeners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you ask any scientist, you know, is there anything you would consider to be a superfood? I would imagine they probably, like me, say. Well, no no there isn't because there's no one food that will satisfy all of your nutrient requirements or give you a particular boost compared to anything else, and certainly not compared to having a healthy, varied and and, and balanced diet. Um superfoods are sometimes it's, it's sometimes some particular food item, a particular type of fruit, for example. Uh, Sometimes it can be a particular supplement that people are referring to. Uh, Like I say, at the end of the day, you only ever see that term really in people who are trying to sell you something, that it's got something special. And I, I, I don't really like this focus on individual food items as being you know the answer to all your problems because Mm. obviously they're they never are going to be yeah they can have certain benefits provided you take enough of them but I also have to ask yourself well if i'm eating all of that particular superfood am i actually by association essentially excluding other things that i should be having Mm. which would give me equal benefit or missing out on things because i'm I'm concentrating on the these particular foods, and more for people eating you know, um, fruits and vegetables, as I already mentioned. Uh, but you know, eat a variety; don't just concentrate on one single type. You you talked about supplementing there, um, and I
0: do think that sometimes that gets confused with supplements as well. Um, again, that's something you talk about in your book. What what's your view? And I'll give this some context. I had a discussion with a pharmacist who was interested in whole foods and eating and nutrition. And she made what I thought was a very valid point that the the earth and the soil that we farm today isn't as plentiful and rich with nutrients as it might have been 100 years ago. And so we would probably not have the same level of vitamins and minerals in um, 21st century vegetables as we might have had in 19th century. And so she felt that that we perhaps should be taking some supplements um like vitamin c uh, um, and a couple of other things in order to top that up uh, what's your view on on our necessary intake of additional supplements
1: um well certainly i disagree i disagree in, in in relation to you know ones like you just mentioned there vitamin c i mean it's very clear if you eat a real amount of uh fresh fruit and vegetables you can get more than enough vitamin c uh not only to satisfy your requirement but to you know go fairly well over the uh, recommended daily allowance so to me that that one is certainly not an issue if you're if you're eating a say a a healthy balanced and varied diet that meets your energy requirements Uh, there are some things i would say that are worth considering as out and out supplements. And again, these have to be in context. It depends on the situation. For example, if you are intentionally dieting to lose weight, then I think taking a daily multivitamin tablet that supplies the RDA for all of the 13 essential minerals is is a good idea, isn't it, as an insurance policy to make sure you don't become deficient in uh, any of those essential Vitamins, vitamin D in the form of vitamin D3 as a supplement. I I agree with taking that into it in the winter months because that's a very different mm-hmm. uh, vitamin to all of the others in that it's not you know it, it's actually predominantly mostly produced in the body, whereas the the ones apart from vitamin K we we get exclusively from from the diet with, with vitamin D. You know most of it's coming from what we get through the action of sunlight on our skin and we can produce it and in the winter months when we don't have the strength or the amount of sunlight that we need to do that. Many people can become inadequate or frankly deficient in vitamin D. It's been shown particularly in recent years to have many more effects than we originally thought. It was mainly thought to be mostly about bone and teeth health in relation to calcium absorption. But uh, now it's clearly shown to be involved in many processes in the body, including muscle function and in uh, immune function in particular. So, you know, that's something we can take, which can help to protect us against things, getting uh, respiratory viruses like the uh, the common cold and influenza, for example. Mm-hmm. And there's probiotics, uh, which are not a bad idea, to take, I think, uh, to help protect against some respiratory, allergic, and uh, uh, and and gut conditions, and particularly if you've you had to go to an- antibiotics because you've had a bacterial infection, which can mm. be quite common amongst athletes. Then uh, uh, the trouble with antibiotics is they not only kill the bacteria you're aiming to kill that's causing you the the health problem, they'll also probably kill. A substantial proportion of your gut bacteria and you, your gut has a natural tendency to restore itself with a certain number of bacteria uh, lining the the large intestine mostly and uh, not careful you can uh, it can be restored with some less healthier species and uh, to protect against that it's uh it's been shown if you take probiotics particularly if you know you're going to on a course of antibiotics, start taking them before the, you actually go on them and then keep that going for at least another three weeks. After you've finished, your usually sort of one week course of antibiotic tablets and you'll help to restore then your, your, your gut uh, microbiota with uh, healthy species, which are good for your overall health and for your immune function. Huh. And then... For someone like me, who's, like I say, been diagnosed from a fairly early age with with high blood pressure, then what we learned from athletes about the use of beetroot juice, the nitrate it contains, being shown to promote endurance performance and reducing the oxygen cost of exercise, another big boost it has for normal health, if you like, of the average individual is that it tends to lower your blood pressure by about 10 millimetres of mercury. So if you're somebody like me who's sort of borderline hypertensive and has to take a tablet for that every day, you actually can help yourself and help yourself from stop becoming hypertensive by taking uh, beetroot juice as a, a daily supplement. Wow. And if you don't like the taste, you can get these shots now, of course, nowadays, which are mm. concentrated that's another good one to, to have. Okay. So um, definitely
0: most of the common supplements then uh, to avoid, um, but but definitely vitamin D, probiotics, uh, probably around the time when you might be taking antibiotics. And um, for those of you who've got high blood pressure, uh, maybe consider taking beetroot juice as a way of um, sort of providing some sort of relief from that. I am looking through my list of questions now, Mike, and we were going to talk about sleep. Let's go back to that subject. You talked about um getting seven to eight hours sleep. Now, I I hear people saying you need set you need eight hours sleep a night. If you don't get that, then you're setting yourself up for all sorts of problems. I then hear other experts saying, Well, actually, it's not about it's, it's not about getting seven to eight hours sleep. It's about the quality of sleep you get, you know, how many disturbances you have in life. So you could be in bed for seven hours, but sleep for six and a half. Um, others talk about the consistency of bedtime. So making sure you go to bed and get up at the pretty much the same times each day. What what are the real important factors when it comes to sleep and what can we do to improve it?
1: Yeah, well, just to clarify what you first there, I think the, the data shows that if you're getting somewhere between six and eight hours of sleep, as I said before, that's the amount that is associated with minimal risk of developing cardiovascular and metabolic diseases over the over the long term. So that's probably the main thing to try and aim for. But that, you know, that that does mean six to eight hours of sleep. As you've mentioned, a lot of people when they go to bed may you know, wake up during the night. For some people, that might be almost every hour, every couple of hours, or maybe just once a night. And those awakenings, obviously, are when you're, you're not actually asleep, so that time doesn't actually count. You might be sort of resting, but you're not actually doing it in restorative sleep, so What you like you say, you want to aim for is getting a a reasonable average amount of sleep each night and also minimising those sleep disturbances and awakenings during the night. Now, like you say, setting regular times for going to bed and waking up is one thing. It's also a good idea if you're gonna, you know, an active person, don't don't do a lot of exercise in the you know, sort of three hours before you're intending to go go to bed because you're already putting your, your body in a, an excited state. When, when you go to sleep, your heart rate slows, you know, your, your, your hormones like adrenaline are low levels, your muscles are starting to relax and your, your body temperature will drop by a degree or so. And obviously anything you're doing to heat up the body, like doing vigorous exercise or even having a, a really hot shower or bath isn't a good idea. It's not going to really help you help you sleep. Um, you actually want your body temperature to start dropping a little if you can. So I, I recommend having, having just a lukewarm shower. That's what I do rather than having a hot shower. Uh, and I'll have that actually probably a couple of hours before I actually go to bed. Uh, it's about your environment as well, about having a, a comfortable, you know, warmish bed. So you're not going to feel cold in the night. That's not going to wake you up. But also, it's not, not going to make you feel too hot. So, you know, you can get these different togs for the the duvets and good quality sort of uh, hot sheets. Those are the most comfortable things to sleep in and adjust the the tog rating of your duvet depending on the uh you know, the temperature and the, 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 the time of year. And it's generally shown that uh, if you have a bedroom temperature somewhere between about 15 and 19 degrees, which might sound a little on the cool side to some people, that's actually the best for sleeping because, you remember, you are generally under some uh, covering, mm. uh, which will help to keep you warm. Uh, and uh, you know, also what you eat or drink beforehand, avoiding things like uh, – coffee with caffeine in it and things like that or alcohol even or heavy meals, you know, before going to bed. Uh, you know, don't have your your evening meal at nine o'clock if you're going to be going to bed at, you know, 10, 30 Have it earlier in the day if you can. And uh also about drinking fluid. Some people like me have to take a tablet every night before they go to bed, but I, I'll wash it down with just like half a cup of water. Because if I know I how, if I have a full cup of water or more, I'll be getting up to pee an hour later. Mm. So, you know, it, it's things like that. It's only small, small adjustments you need to make. But if you think about what it needs, what your body needs to actually get off to sleep, and some of the things that are likely to wake you up during the night, then uh, try and sort of uh, minimize those. I mean, a lot of people advocate not watching television or using, you know, the phones, the tablets, laptops, et cetera, you know, just before you are going to bed. Uh, very difficult for some people, I think, to actually avoid doing that. But it's not only the blue light that's emitted by those uh, phones and tablets that can help to stop you going off to sleep because it affects your melatonin levels. Um, it's also, you know, if you're getting emails and messages from people, this might be something that actually is going to worry you and you're going to be thinking about that before you go to bed rather than thinking, you know, relaxing thoughts and dreaming of holidays mm. and going for a nice run in the countryside or something, you know. So I always try and encourage people to actually try, try and forget your worries in bed. And one of the ways of avoiding that is don't look at your emails or your or phone messages and what have you uh what 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 you're going to sleep
0: it seems to me with a lot of the elements that you've talked about today this there just needs to be a bit of mindfulness from people so rather than having a a sort of a a subconscious routine that we go through anyway we we just think a little bit more about what we do you know this this pre-bedtime routine is is just often habits that people have dropped into so they'll they'll you know, if they've got children, they'll cook dinner, they'll tidy up, then they'll relax, they'll have a glass of wine, they'll flick through their emails, they'll watch something on telly, and then they'll go to bed. And that's because what they've always done, um, some subtle changes, like you say, I, I've I've found particularly that not looking at my computer, if possible, after seven, turning off my phone um, where possible and um more recently, I've started reading a real book, not a Kindle or my iPad, but reading a real book for 15 or 20 minutes before I go to sleep really helped to take my mind off everything for the day and and just help me get into a nice sleeping pattern.
1: Yeah, it's whatever works for you, uh, Simon. Yeah, I mean, re- reading a books a good idea. Your, your mind tends to relax then and just become involved in you know in in the fiction if that's what you're reading or in the interest of. What it is if it's a non-fiction book, um, so people like listening to, uh, you know, relaxing music for ten or fifteen minutes before going to bed. You know, we're not talking about sort of loud banging rock music, but something you know, melodic and something that just you know just relaxes your mind, just gives you a little bit of enjoyment before you go to sleep. So again, helping to take away your your worries and your the thoughts are the things you don't want to be concentrating on before you're trying to get off to sleep. You know, you can worry about those in the morning where you wake up, but don't take them to bed with you. In your book, you, um, and actually during our pre
0: sort of, um, pre podcast conversations, you pointed me towards a particular subject, which was about losing excess fat, but without following a boring diet. Um, now, I'm quite interested in this in in how you can stay enthusiastic in what you want to do because most people will think that in order to lose weight you've got to cut out all the things you enjoy and you've got to stick to eating lettuce and some chicken and and salads and um, you know just just a small a small number of very healthy things until you've lost that weight. So I'm interested in um, the best way to lose weight without um, following a boring diet. And also then you talk about. A multi-diet plan for effective, healthy weight loss. So I'm, I'm interested to to know more about that as well. Once you've got the weight off,
1: right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, actually, the the multi-diet approach is something I actually recommend for uh, for actually going when you're going on a diet. Okay. You know, great. rather than rather than considering just go on one diet like a keto diet, for example, which seems to be one of the mm-hmm popular ones. But again, to me, that that type of diet is what I would call a a fad diet because it's very extreme. You're essentially trying to cut out virtually all of the carbohydrate in your diet. To me, there's no real sense in doing that, particularly if you're somebody who wants to maintain some level of moderate to high intensity activity. In your life, because that will compromise your ability to to do that, and it's something it's certainly something I wouldn't recommend a, any sort of athlete or football player to to adopt. Uh, and I think the main problem with most forms of diet, let's face it, there's lots and lots of ones potentially that can and do work, and the evidence is out there to prove that they they do. But people seem to become fixating as I've got to stick on this one particular diet for. Mm. 10 weeks, let's say. So what I'm saying is, well, if there are like at least 10 different diets have been proven to work and you don't want to get bored with what you're eating, same things week after week after week, then why not just swap your diet every week? Choose from 10 different diets, switch to a different one every week. Now, it might sound a bit gimmicky, At the end of the day, what you're meaning is you're not having to eat that same combination of foods for weeks on end. Mm -hmm. Most diets are restrictive in some form or other. Some might tend to peer towards uh, cutting out carbs. Other ones more to cutting out fats. Other ones might be intermittent fasting diets or time-restricted eating. There's all these different ways of doing things. But I think you're trying to do that for ten weeks. After a matter of just a few weeks, you're going to become bored with doing that, and that's the problem. People then just don't stick to the diet, you know, and they start to cheat and they they give it up altogether as a bad job. Um, And if you if you do change your diet every week because you're changing what's restricted each week in one way or another, then it's giving you more variety in what you're going to be eating over that 10 week period. So you're less likely to get particular food cravings for something that you're cutting out continuously because you're not having to do that. You're going to get different food flavors and textures, which makes your eating more satisfying than trying to stick to the same sort of uh, diet every week. And it's going to be healthier because any nutritional deficiencies that might be a tendency to develop on a particular diet or well, you're not sticking it to it for more than a week. So you, you're going to be getting a healthier level of food intake and you can certainly ensure that you get over that 10 weeks plenty of the fiber and the phytonutrients that you need for for optimal health. So ultimately, it just makes your, your weight loss plan actually easier to stick to, less boring and overall a much more healthier way of of doing things. And so that, that's what I promote in each of the last three books I've, I've written. I've promoted this sort of multi-diet approach yeah. to dieting for weight loss and also combining it with doing some exercise. You burn 500 calories with exercise per day. That's 500 calories less that you don't have to cut out of your diet. So you don't have to make your dieting part of your weight loss plan as uh, as strict as it would be if you're relying on diet alone. I like
0: that. I've, I've never considered uh, because I've never considered the idea of including lots of different dietary approaches in in one sort of overarching lifestyle approach. And um, mostly because, as you say, you'll hear people say, oh, "I'm going on the keto diet now," and it's and Quite rightly, you say it's it's so restrictive that it's just not sustainable. Um, you know, I've I've heard people talk about the benefits of the carnivore diet and where, whether it works or not. And depending on your ethical um, outlook on life, um, again, it could be quite restrictive if you like the you know if you like your vegetables. Um, I do like the idea of including some intermittent fasting, but not every week as that's it, particularly if you're training hard, that seems to have the same sort of limitations as keto where, where you're restrictive. And what I also like about the multi-diet plan, Mike, is that each week when you're changing your nutritional approach, you're going to have to remind yourself of what sort of foods are included in that particular diet, if it's keto or if it's, um, <laughs> if it's, if it's low-carb, high-fat and you're going to have to think about what foods are not included. In. So you're actually having to plan your foods in advance, plan your shopping and just be more mindful of the whole eating experience. And again, um, mindlessness around nutrition seems to be where a lot of problems occur because people just do stuff out of habit when, without thinking about what they're actually consuming.
1: Yeah. And again, if you, if you try different diets, lots of different diets, you'll probably actually find some you you like more than others. Mm. you might also find to a degree which one sort of works best for you or fits best in your lifestyle or, or for your partner as well if they're having to trying to, having to fit in with what you're eating rather than uh, creating entirely different meals for them so yeah so it it, it can help with that as well and uh it help you decide which is uh, which is actually for you and then you might decide well actually I like five of them I'm not bothered for the other five so next time I'll just alternate you know uh, uh, every week for for five weeks and then go back to the one I was on originally there's no hard and fast rules that you have to do this diet or you have to do this diet followed by this diet and then this diet in any particular order you can do it in any order you like really Uh, it's just getting more variety into your dieting It'll make you more likely to stick to your weight loss plan.
0: I think part of the problem with nutrition is that um, p- people become very parochial about the diet that they like, don't they? It's almost like religion, you know, and it, and it becomes very binary. So you're either with us or you're against us. With this one here, you can keep everybody
1: happy, you know. I'm like I'm all of them. Well, yeah, apparently from the apparently from the apart from keto people, as I've discovered to my cost on Twitter when I tried to. <laughs> wouldn't say ran this down their throats but uh, uh, try to, try to make my point but there's some like, there's some people like you say that are uh, for whatever reason you know they found that, that 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 works for them and they like it so i said well there's no problem no problem stick with it if that's what you want but don't try and persuade everybody else that that's the best way to do it because it probably isn't well and i'd say it's certainly not the healthiest way to do it
0: no you're absolutely right. right i I, I had a guest on, uh, Dr. Tommy Wood, who's a nutritionist, and he's, he's actually a medical doctor. He's a research scientist in he's doing a lot of um, infant brain injuries, but he's got this passion for nutrition as well. And his his overarching statement is: Look, if you found something that works for you, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with that, but it doesn't mean it's right for everybody. So you know, you need to keep it in your own little silo.
1: Exactly, and uh, I mean, for the people who've uh, been diagnosed with type two diabetes, and when they're meant Recommended to lose weight, one of the ways which has become fashionable now is to go either on on a a keto diet or a very low energy diet. And the one promoted by the NHS is essentially a 800 calorie day diet, which, as you realise, is a a very low energy intake. And to achieve that and still get your essential micronutrients. basically you're being asked to uh, have lots of these sort of soup type meal normal in that case to lose that excess weight that you need to get rid of type 2 diabetes Mm. Uh, so no I, i i don't go i know it's been proven to work but only with people who are actually being counseled on a regular basis and given you know, assistance and encouragement to to keep going. Um and I think if you're trying to do it yourself, it's much easier to try and find an easier, less drastic way. And that's why I promote this idea of a, a multi-diet. You can eat normal foods and combine it with exercise. So you don't have to restrict your diet quite as much. Well the other and thing overall it's going to be healthier. The other thing for me of
0: course as well, Mike, is that you know I fail to see what the rush is for most people. Sure, if if you are drastically overweight and there are some impending health problems that you need to try and avoid, then maybe a drastic approach is required. But but for most people, let's say they're in the mid-40s and they're planning to be around on this earth for another 30 years, in my mind, surely the key is to make sure you live healthily for the next thirty years. So it's it's not necessary to try and lose all that weight straight away. Just change your habits and slowly lose the weight. Find a sustainable approach that you're happy with, and just slowly turn yourself into a healthier human being.
1: Yes, I mean it's much easier to do things uh, more gradually, provided you you know you're, you're willing to to stick with that sort of. Uh, resolution as it were um and you know making the small changes first and see how that goes and trying to keep that going is much easier than like you say than trying to do something sort of really drastic and look for a quick fix solution but if you you know if you read any of the diet books that are out there it's all about you know losing so many stone in a matter of weeks which which really is unrealistic and very unhealthy to actually attempt anyway Hmm. Um, I'm conscious of the time, Mike. And there was one more thing
0: that I wanted to pick up on. You, you sort of mentioned it at the beginning about um, immune function and avoiding common illnesses. And I know you've you've done a lot of work on immunology. And uh, um, so I couldn't leave it without having a, a chat about COVID-19. Perhaps, perhaps what we could talk about is... Um, going forwards, once we've all got the vaccines, I've heard lots of people saying that this thing's going to be with us. It'll be in the community. We'll we'll never be completely rid of it, like the flu. So, what what can we all do um, to be proactive and maintain our own health and that of our family and our circle of friends?
1: Well, I think as as we've all discovered in this past year, you know, there are certain things you can do to reduce your exposure to the, uh, the the microorganisms the viruses and the bacteria in our, our environment that actually cause disease so part of your things as we've all become familiar with are the you know the the hygiene things the washing the hands regularly using alcohol gels wearing masks and social distancing you know that we're, we're sick to death of hearing about that really uh, The other side of it is trying to maintain robust immunity to make us protected as we possibly can be against uh, picking up infections through our lifestyle behaviours. And the ones we've mentioned about you being, you know, moderately and regularly physically active, about getting sufficient amounts of good quality sleep about minimizing other forms of stress in our like and eating healthily and maintaining what most people would recognize as sort of a, a normal, healthy body weight or things that help protect us against becoming infected by maintaining our um, immune system in a in a robust state. And, and as we've seen with covid the majority of the people who've had the serious, you know, hospitalizations and health problems and and deaths are people who haven't been taking care of their lifestyle behaviors. Who have been overweight, relatively inactive, and like everything else in life, things get worse as you get older in general. So. Uh, you can't do anything about your age, but I say you can do things about these modifiable lifestyle behaviors like your exercise, like what you eat, like maintaining a healthy body weight, and you know trying to sleep well. So those are the things that actually do the most things to actually protect us in terms of us having our uh, immune system, if you like, in its optimal state. And the rest is about protecting yourself against coming into contact with these pathogens in the environment that cause the disease. And one of the issues with COVID has been it is so infectious. And for example, another well one of the top-rated exercise nutritional immunologists in my book is Professor Philip Calder at the University of Southampton. And he he was quoted uh earlier uh, this year, or last last year, saying actually that there's nothing you can eat that will do enough to your immune system to stop you becoming infected with COVID if you come into contact with it for a sufficient duration of time because it is simply so contagious. But what um, having a, a robust immune system means also is that it won't actually overreact to it when you do get infected, and it's that excessive inflammation in the lungs that's causing people to actually get breathing problems and ultimately dying from the from the condition in hospital. So, you know, um, having your immune system in its optimal condition not only means protecting yourself from becoming infected in the in the first place, it also means actually trying to help ensure. That you that you react appropriately to it strongly enough to help you get rid of the uh, of the the nasty bug, but uh, not overreacting to it and causing associated health problems that occur with that, which can be ultimately life threatening.
0: I, I know that in general, exercise is good for your immune system, and uh, but but I guess there are times if we're training hard for an event where we're, we're pushing the training a little bit, we may be training a little bit harder, and maybe our sleep's compromised as well. Is that uh, is there a point at where we can um, where regular exercise can push us to the point where our, where it's actually weakening our immune system?
1: Um, yes, I mean, that 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 sort of particular point has been argued a little bit more in. In recent years, I think probably 20 years ago, that was uh, quite well accepted. Certainly, if you do periods of intensified training and also when uh, elite athletes go to major competitions, uh, that seems to be the time that they're most susceptible to picking up infections. Again, that's always going to be a combination of how much exposure they're getting and what is the status of their immune system, but uh, lots of studies I was involved in, some of them showed that doing very prolonged bouts of exercise in particular uh, was uh, associated with uh, at least temporary depression of immune function. And If you did that every day without any recovery days, like the six or seven days in a row, you could get your immune system into a state of chronic depression. And that you would predict would, uh, yes, uh, improve your susceptibility to picking up infections. What's being argued nowadays is, well, is it just the exercise? Or is it like you just mentioned, perhaps it's the the, the impact that exercise is having on your sleep duration and your sleep quality, which Mm. tends to be impaired when you are doing intensified training perhaps you've been involved in long haul travel to some of these competitions that's something else that can depress immunity and of course when you're exercising your energy demands are increased and your demands for other micronutrients are increased if you're not eating right then you might actually be getting you know some marginal nutritional deficiency that might also contribute uh, to that and then there's the added you know psychological stress of both training hard balancing your other life commitments and also the anxiety of upcoming and participating in real life competitions so it could be a combination of things i think associated with Mm. exercise perhaps not all down to the actual physical exercise itself probably makes a contribution because it does increase your stress hormones which are sort of anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive but uh it's probably a combination of the factors like any of these things are that's actually contributing to somewhat increased susceptibility to picking up infections when you are training hard or becoming involved in intensive competition okay
0: well thanks for clearing that one up uh, um i think a lot of people will be interested in what they can well i hope they are interested in what they can do to just maintain their health So, we uh, sort of Return to normality and try to live with this thing. Um, I pre- really appreciate your time today, Mike. Uh, it's it's actually very simple, isn't it? Staying healthy, whether you're an athlete or whether you just want to be, you know, a healthy, mom and dad, um, and prolonging your health span into old age. It's uh, you know, you need to eat mindfully, you need to move regularly, you need to get good sleep, and you need to do that every day. Um, I, I do think we've we've touched on it a little bit about books that people sell and uh, things that people market, and I think that's what um, clouds the issue somewhat is that we get confused by uh, the mixed message we're given, particularly when newspapers are creating headlines that are often from one week to the next uh,
1: slightly contradictory. Yeah, as I've said in the past, you know, staying healthy doesn't have to be complicated, provided you're aware of you know what sort of bad health behaviors can, you know, contribute to your, your risks of illness. So it is, it is partly, I think, about people becoming educated and also becoming, uh, you know, learning what the lessons are and actually carrying out those in their daily lives. You could say that was what I failed to do for a number of years in my in my 50s, you know, and I paid the price for that but I've done something about it. It's very easy to do things about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, don't don't lose sight of that. You know, your health is your most important part uh, of your living, if you like. and If you want to live for a long time and you want to live healthy for a long time, you need to consciously do something about that.
0: Yeah, salient lesson there to us all is just because you know what you're doing doesn't mean you're actually doing things you should be doing.
1: Quite right. <laughs> Uh,
0: what's next for you then, Mike? I, I take it it feels to me like you, you're filling retirement with the opportunity to get all of these um, life's lessons and learnings out into paper. So, what what have you got coming up next?
1: It is. It's it's partly about that. Uh, another thing, you know, about optimal health that we haven't actually really touched on is sort of mental well-being, isn't it? So, for somebody who's retired and no longer all those. Things to do they would have done at work it just has to keep your brain active and interested and I've always been an avid reader so I you know I, that that's what sort of driven me to do it as well as sort of trying to put the message out there uh, about you know ways in which people can actually maintain or indeed improve their their present level of health but the, my next project which is just uh, about to go to the the printer is a new book about uh, nutrition for elite performance in in football. It was based on my involvement, a three-year involvement over the past three or four years actually in uh, being part of the UEFA expert group on nutrition elite football we were asked to put together a, a consensus paper which isn't easy when there's like 30 different authors contributing to it uh, so uh, that's what i've done and try and put that information that was in the scientific paper which is only actually published this year in the british journal of sports medicine take that rather long and sciency paper and translate it into uh, information that the uh, you know public and the average professional or amateur footballer uh can understand so it's again about sort of doing the brian cox thing taking the complicated science and uh converting that into a language that the everyday person can understand and enjoy and get something out of
0: can i can i ask them what what's the difference about performance uh, what nutrition for football performance than the normal performance uh, as a
1: human being? Well, again, it's about meeting the energy demands about knowing what the actual physiological technical demands of match play and football training are about. And the, the fuels are going to be used in the exercise and making sure those are replenished, um, after a game and after heavy training sessions and then preparing the the player for optimal performance on 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 match day so it's all about not only what the player eats but when they eat it and uh, the composition of what they eat and uh, the the timing and the amounts in which they eat to achieve optimal performance about your when you when should you eat your pre-match meal for example one hour before kickoff three hours or six hours before it's about those kind of issues about and the other obvious ones like uh, getting uh, optimal hydration status before you start a match About what are the sorts of potential supplements that potentially might help some players at least boost their performance in a game or boost their recovery afterwards. So it's about all of those issues and how sorts of things we often talk about in science, always about sort of you need so much carbohydrate, so much protein, so much fat, so much of this micronutrient, so much of this other micronutrient, actually putting that also into what does that mean for the food that goes on the plate? Uh, so, luckily, I was actually able to collaborate with two of the two of the very best performance chefs in in the world, who supplied most of the recipes for the meal plans that are really in the final chapter of the book. So, you know, it comes from the, the the scientific basis of what footballers are advised to do to the practicalities of well, this is what they have to achieve to eat to achieve those particular. Uh, macronutrient compositions and uh, the things they should eat with it or drink with it to, to get where they need to be. Well, um, if you, if
0: you're releasing that book at the end of the Euros and then obviously all of those amateur footballers that are going back out there will be enthused and getting fit and ready to um, play again in September. I'm sure you're going to get an uptake of uh, book sales as a result of that. So be- best wishes with, with the sale of that new book. Um, we will put the show notes um, with all of the references to your books and particularly this one we've chatted about today eat move sleep and repeat so listeners can find um the links to where they can buy their copy so professor mike gleason thank you very much for being on the show really appreciate your input and your time and your unbiased but but scientifically sound guidance on exactly what we should be doing to um to optimize our health going into the later stages of our life
1: thank you Simon. it's been a pleasure
0: Okay, listeners, well, that's it for this week. Thanks for being here, as always, and we'll be back soon with more guests. Take care. Thank you to Mike for joining me on the High Performance Human podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or get the app for your mobile device. And please don't forget to leave a rating and review while you're there right that's all for this week we'll be back in seven days time with another great guest but for now stay healthy and stay focused on being a high performance human in every aspect of your life